coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. I don't know about you guys, but uh, the Monday after the Super Bowl is always one of the harder days to get any work done. I've been pretty productive today. I mean, I did get some real estate work done. Uh, I did some softball league stuff as well. Even cleaned the condo. A load of laundry, swept and mopped the floors, and uh, here it is. Uh, well, you're hearing this a little after five. I'm about an hour before getting this show done. I'm actually already two segments done already. You think I do this chronologically, and I just let you know that that doesn't actually happen. Segments two and four are already done. So here we are with segment one. Are you confused? I, I didn't want to make you that way. Anyway, welcome to The Ron Show. I'm your host, Ron Roberts. And uh, the big story of the day, uh, as uh, Tamar Hollerman with the AJC tweeted out earlier, a Fulton judge said Monday that he planned to keep private portions of a special grand jury report that recommends specific individuals be indicted following an eight-month criminal probe that examined meddling in Georgia's 2020 election. Robert McBurney, by the way, is the judge. He said he did plan to release three portions of the report later this week. Oh, this is going to be a good week, y'all. Including the introduction, conclusion, and section in which the grand jury, quote, discusses its concern that some witnesses may have lied under oath during their testimony to the grand jury. <gasps> As many smart people have already noted, I'm continuing with Tamar's tweet here, McBurney's order today all but confirms that the final report recommends indictments. The question now is whether District Attorney Fonnie Willis will agree. She heavily suggested that she would be pursuing charges at a hearing last month. Tamar continues via tweet, The spiciest question from McBurney's order, who might have lied to grand jurors? Sources have started offering their guesses. Fulton DA Fonnie Willis says she's satisfied with McBurney's order and doesn't plan to appeal the decision. Quoted in saying, I believe Judge McBurney's order is legally sound and consistent with my request. I have no plans to appeal today's order. As our friend and frequent guest, Jay Bookman with the Georgia Recorder tweets, so bottom line, there are indictments recommended. You don't withhold sections of the report out of fairness to those who might be indicted unless indictments are being sought. If you need to go ahead and schedule some time to sit back and wait on this to drop, the Washington Post is reporting that uh, the three parts of the report are going to be made public Thursday. There seems to be some sentiment within the Trump camp that Donald himself may avoid some charges initially. Uh, according to the Daily Kos, Laura Clausen, she wrote, Trump's lawyers are insisting that Trump will be vindicated because he was never called in or subpoenaed by this grand jury, they say. Quote, we can assume that the grand jury did their job and looked at the facts and the laws we have and concluded there were no violations of the law by President Trump. Well, that's just cute. So what's kind of maddening about that, honestly, is that, uh, well, this article came out, uh, I believe, over the weekend from the Washington Post as well. Uh, yeah, this one came out Saturday that laid out a timeline that went as such. The Trump campaign spent about $600,000 for outside researchers to get them to find data that proved that there was election fraud. Now, in a conference call in December of 2020, they told Trump that no such fraud occurred. 
Did you hear me? December of 2020, they told Trump and his campaign staffers that no such fraud occurred. Trump called Brad Raffensperger January 2nd of 2021. The following month, well, days after December of 2020. That's right. Donald Trump paid $600,000 to outside researchers to find proof of election fraud. In December of 2020, they could find no such fraud and told him that. So what does he do? He gets on the phone with Brad Raffensperger on January 2nd, just days into the 2021 New Year, and ask him to find, you know, a few thousand extra votes. Find a few thousand extra votes. How is this man not indicted yet? It just kills this. If you don't think the justice system benefits the well-heeled, the in-office, the white, well-heeled in-office versus everyone else, what else is it going to take for you to understand that? I... I'm mystified by anyone who doesn't see it that way. And and the thing is, I'm almost of the mind that it's not that folks don't see it that way. It's that they're quite okay with it being that way. I mean, think about it. The list just keeps growing. There was the outside research firm that he spent $600,000, probably, I'm guessing, campaign money that his rubes kept sending him. (laughs) Y'all, I'm telling you, watch your loved one's bank accounts. If they're like of an old and somewhat feeble mind, maybe ask them if they don't mind you watching their finances for them. Because obviously, it's pretty clear they're easy marks. Not just for Trump, but man, I remember watching over my grandmother's stuff, the mail, the finances that were coming in, the stuff she was sending money to. It's like, wait, why were you doing that? Same should be done with this guy. So not only was he spending... His rubes, hard-earned $600,000 to pay research firms to find evidence of fraud, and then got word that they could find no such fraud. His attorney general told him he lost, and then the acting attorney general after that told him he lost. His White House counsel told him he lost. His vice president told him he lost. His campaign manager told him. Data experts, campaign attorneys, Kelly Ann Conway, Fox News all told him he lost. And yet there he was on January 2nd, calling Brad Raffensperger. And on January 6th, standing before a few thousand of his supporters, insisting that they'd all been conned by this devious plan to subvert the true outcome of the election. And we all know what happened later that day, January 6th, 2021. How is this man not indicted. Now, in a separate piece written by Tamar Holloman with Hollerman with the HAC, Fonnie Willis has some of these state laws to focus on. Criminal solicitation to commit election fraud. And so that occurs when a person, quote, knowingly and willingly falsifies, conceals, or covers up by any trick, scheme, or device a material fact to any state or county government agency. Penalty, uh, a fine of up to $1,000 or one to five years in prison. Okay, $1,000 is nothing. Conspiracy, uh, that occurs when a person together with one or more others conspire to commit any crime and anyone carries out, quote, any overt act to affect 
the object of the conspiracy. Georgia law also has separate charge for conspiracy to commit election fraud. Felony conspiracy carries a sentence of at least one year imprisonment and up to half the maximum period of time for which he could have been sentenced if he had been convicted of the crime conspired to have been committed. And there are also misdemeanor uh, penalties there. There's racketeering charges. Georgia's uh, RICO law, the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organization Act, uh, makes it illegal for, quote, any person through a pattern of racketeering activity or proceeds derived therefrom to acquire or maintain directly or indirectly any interest or control of any enterprise, real property or personal property of any nature, including money. Penalties for felony RICO include five to 20 years imprisonment and fines of up to $25,000 or three times the value of money, property, or commercial interest a person made through their racketeering activity. That, by the way, something not Donald has to worry about, but something some of his minions might. Then there's those who are in office who may have violated the oath of office. Public officers in Georgia take an oath to support the state and federal constitutions. If convicted, a public official could face one to five years in prison, according to the AJC. And here we go. Involvement in violence or threats related to election administration. Remember the two young ladies who were on the Fulton election, they were the volunteers at the Fulton County uh, election office? Georgia law makes it a felony for any person to use or threaten violence in a manner that would prevent or, quote, materially interfere with the ability of poll officers to execute their duties. Same thing for using or threatening violence to, quote, prevent a reasonable elector from voting or willfully tampering with, quote, any electors list, voter certificate, numbered list of voters, ballot box, voting machine, direct recording, electronic equipment, or tabulating machine, end quote. Penalties for such crimes include one to 10 years in prison or fines of up to $100,000. Some of those could be some of the minions that were threatening the lives of those poll workers. That one may actually cast a shadow on Donald himself. Okay, to circle back, Judge Robert McBurney has announced today that some of the Trump grand jury report will be released this week. The Washington Post reporting that that release will be Thursday, but McBurney also rules that most of the report being kept private. However, the implications of that privacy seem to loom large for those who would potentially be indicted. Like he's withholding some of this in order to give potential defendants an opportunity to prepare their case. Hmm. All right, let's talk a little Super Bowl. Not just some game highlights and historic moments, but of course, Rihanna too. Duh, that's up next. More Ron Show on America One Radio after this. Oh, hey, you're still here. Hey, that's cool. Thanks for sticking around. Not only am I host of The Ron Show, I'm also Ron Roberts, real estate agent slash realtor with EXP Realty. That's right. I help folks buy and sell residential real estate in and around Metro Atlanta. And we've been through a crazy couple of years, have we not? Between COVID, the post-COVID market, the craziness, you could throw an open house on a souped up tool shed and you would have cars lined around the block to come in and see it and throw an offer well over asking price. Well, those days are no longer a part of us and interest rates are a little higher than they were before. But I must say, it's still a great time to either buy or sell or both real estate, residential real estate in Metro Atlanta. Why buy? I tell tenuous buyers all the time, if you are renting right now, 
You are paying someone else's retirement accounts your money, and it might as well go to you. The cost of housing in Atlanta is not going to get cheaper. The population is going to continue to grow well into the 2040s, with nearly a million and a half new residents expected to come here. So you better get a house sooner rather than later. And if you can afford to buy an investment property, now if you already own your home, why not buy one nearby you as well and create some additional income that could be your retirement savings and you get to choose one of your new neighbors. Now, if you're thinking about selling, but you're thinking, oh man, I really missed out on that huge market in the past summer or two. Okay, yeah, sure. But the values aren't dropping. So you still got plenty you've earned just by owning what you're in and need to sell soon. Got questions? Feel free to hit me up. 843-283-0078 or email me ron at rononthereal.com. Georgia MLS 396-720. Website rononthereal.com. That's me, Ron Roberts with EXP Realty. Want to be on the show? Have a cause or campaign you'd like to speak up for? Email Ron at ronshowatl.com or call 404-919-2725. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So here we are again on a Monday after the Super Bowl. And I'm just wondering, why is this not a holiday yet? My gosh, we've done this like more than 50 years now. We know what the Monday after the Super Bowl is like. We know the productivity sucks. We have still not made this a holiday. I don't get it. Although I I must say, we have some other dates that probably, you know, warrant becoming a holiday first. I don't know, Election Day being one of them. That should be a national holiday. That being said, we're all on the struggle bus today, are we not? Speaking of the Super Bowl, I don't know how many of you it was lost on. It was lost on me just a little bit, creeping up until kickoff. That this is the first time in Super Bowl history that two teams came into the game with two African-American starting quarterbacks. It really, for someone my age, and I'll be 49 in a few days, for someone my age, I still remember all the hullabaloo over the fact that we are going to even have a black starting quarterback in the Super Bowl. It was Doug Williams. Back in the 1980s, late 1980s, mid-1980s, in that uh, nice little run that the Washington Redskins had where they picked up a few Super Bowls under uh, Coach Robert Gibbs back in the day, Doug Williams was sort of a surprise. The Redskins, not so much, but Doug Williams was sort of a surprise. And I remember when he was the first black starting quarterback in Super Bowl history. So fast forward I mean, I'd say about, what, 35 years ago? I'm trying to remember what year that was. I could be diligent and just look it up, right? Hang on, let me do that. Yeah, okay, so I was right. It was like 19, 1987, as a matter of fact, when he was uh, the not just the starting quarterback for the 1987 Super Bowl, Super Bowl 22. He propelled the Washington Redskins to a 42-10 to victory after... The team went down 10 to nothing. They then, in the second quarter, scored 35 of their 42 unanswered points just in the second quarter. And the MVP, by the way, that same quarterback, Doug Williams. So here we are in Black History Month, and it's just hard not to make note of these sorts of things, right? That yesterday, last night, the first time we saw two African-American quarterbacks 
in a Super Bowl. When you go from 1987 to 2023, and it's 36 years. Yeah, I was right. 36 years since we first saw an African-American quarterback in the Super Bowl. I just find that kind of noteworthy. And I'm a little surprised that last night was the first time it happened, honestly. You have to remember, I'm a Falcons fan. I remember Michael Vick, and we knew Michael Vick was going to get the Falcons to the Super Bowl. That did not happen. Um, But there have been a lot of great quarterbacks of color just in these last 36 years, y'all. The Philadelphia Eagles had Reggie Cunningham, Donovan McNabb, now Jalen Hurts. They had Michael Vick for a minute, too, now that I think about it. You look all throughout the NFL at the quarterbacks that are starting throughout. And it's, I don't know, it's just a little stunning that we still are only now just hours away from the first time in NFL history that both teams had black quarterbacks. And I know that there are those who, oh, we don't need to make a big deal about that. No, I think we, I think we do. I, I think we have to make a big deal about this because it wasn't all that long ago that it was an unpopular thought process in football front offices to draft a black quarterback. They used to use questions and queries and even things like the Wonderlick test to gauge intelligence and the thought process. They used to ask crazy questions of draft-eligible college players heading to the NFL. And of course, most front offices are majority white. In the NFL, most coaches are white. There are six coaches of color, only four of which are black, in the NFL right now. Yet, 60% of the league's athletes are black. 70% players of color. So, you'll have to forgive me if I'm just kind of still stunned that last night was the first time we had a Super Bowl with two African-American quarterbacks. What a great game it was. And both of them, I thought, played exceptionally well. Particularly the winning quarterback who was playing with a high ankle sprain. And then there's Rihanna. (laughs) Rihanna from Barbados, who shows up after years being kind of off the grid a little bit, you know, resting the vocals, having a child, dating billionaires. <laughs> I'd take some time off, too, if I could just date one billionaire. Come on, man. Where are you? Anyway, she resurfaces uh, after having a baby last spring, and it appears she didn't let the womb rest too long. There wasn't a vacancy at that efficiency condo for very long. (laughs) And she did tell us there was going to be a special guest and darn if we didn't see who the special guest was and congrats to her. But a lot of folks were kind of giving her a flack for like, eh, I don't know, kind of a boring halftime show. The woman is pregnant and on a floating stage and I didn't see her wobble. I didn't see her wave her arms for balance. I didn't see her once look in any way startled or stunned. She did that as a pregnant woman. I, as a never pregnant man, usually have to have one hand on a handrail on a moving escalator. So congrats to Rihanna 
for pulling off a 13, 15-minute halftime show while pregnant, choreographed with, I mean, there were hundreds of dancers in those white little hazmat suits that looked like they were little Willy Wonka outfits from the movie. Remember that? Congrats to her for pulling that off. I mean, as a mere mortal, who are we when we have to sometimes have two, three, sometimes four takes to get up out of our recliners and that noise that we we make after a certain age? We are in no position to sit here and talk about what Rihanna did or didn't do in that halftime show last night. Just a marvelous night altogether. And I'm not going to lie. I have like maybe three or four Philadelphia Eagles fans who aren't obnoxious people. The rest of them are dreadful human beings, <laughs> at least when it comes to sports. They're just impossible to deal with. So I'm kind of happy for a couple of my Kansas City Chiefs fans, but just in general, that the Chiefs won last night. More Ron Show on America One Radio next. Take the Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One Radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One Radio. And it's my hope, by the way, that they've got uh, northbound 85 cleared up. Uh, we had one of those car ve- you know, the car carrier, those long trucks with the multiple vehicles on the back heading to car dealerships. There was apparently a a nasty fire on northbound 85 earlier this afternoon. And uh, last I checked, they, you know what? Let me do that right now. Let me check that for you right now. Even though, as I'm checking it, you're going to hear <laughs> what I'm going to find for you like half an hour after I found it. So there's that. Hang on. Okay, so as of 4.38 p.m., that stretch of uh, 85 North into Cap has been reopened after that car carrier caught fire <laughs> earlier this afternoon. Ooh, I said that without tripping up. I'm going to give myself some dessert after dinner tonight. I deserve that one. All right, so this segment is going to be a little bit of wine from me. Uh, I feel I've, I've a grievance. I believe I have a grievance, and I believe I am right to have this grievance. I have, almost from the inception of the launch of this show last October, been a vocal supporter of uh, the Georgia Gang. That is a local, the only... To my knowledge, in Atlanta, the only local public affairs program uh, that offers count, uh, point-counterpoint political commentary. Now, obviously, I am ideologically to the left, which means I find myself uh, pom-pom waving a little bit more, or actually a lot more, for uh, our friend, uh, frequent guest on the show, Melita Easters, and Theron Johnson, who, by the way, I have invited several times. Um, Got his, got his contact information. Theron, bruh, I'm, I'm, wait, I'm waiting on you. We'd love to have you on the show. I think it would be a fantastic show. I could probably devote an entire hour to discussing various uh, things with you. Uh, I also happen to like, I disagree with her a lot, but I happen to like Martha Zeller, who is a frequent conservative pundit on the Georgia Gang. Uh, I disagree almost all the time with Phil Kent, who uh, is a former editorial editor at the Augusta Chronicle, and in full disclosure, he and I actually were employed there at the same time, although I doubt he remembers me (laughs) in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I was a high school underling uh, who was catching agate report information for the Augusta Chronicle. Occasionally, I got to go out and write some stories for like high school basketball or baseball, football games. I did cover the Masters one year for them, but I mean, I when I tell you, my, my story might have been 
uh, half as long in column inches as your smartphone. But I, I got, I can say, I can put it on my resume, I can prove it. I covered the Masters Golf Tournament for the Augusta Chronicle. Anyway, he and I almost never agree. I, I kind of find the way he and uh, the other typical conservative uh, pundit on the show, Janelle King, uh, I, I kind of find them to be a little caricaturish. And what I mean by that is they just like to lob the anti-Democrat, anti-insert candidate name here, insert politician here, red meat, lacking in substance, lacking in fact. And, and I understand, again, I'm coming from a position of bias. I happen to think that uh, Theron and Melita, uh, Bobby Capel, I believe, is, uh, is the guy that's on when, when Theron can't make it a good bit of the time. I just, I just find them to be coming in with a little bit more substance and able to combat the, the cream puffery, the softballs, the red meat that the Phil Kent and the Janelle Kings lob. Martha Zeller, I almost have no problem with the way she presents herself when on the show. Literally. I, I can't think of anything that I've gone, oh, Martha, come on now. I mean, listen, go back through my Twitter threads if you'd like, uh, my personal Twitter, uh, and maybe you'll find something where I disagree with her. But by and large, I just don't have any issues with the way she presents herself on the show. I think she's I think she's, uh, she seems to be a very nice, in fact, I would welcome her on the show. I think she's a very nice lady. We probably would disagree on a whole lot, but I believe she's the kind of conservative that a liberal like me could sit down, have a conversation with, and we would find some middle ground and get something done. Maybe that makes her a throwback. Maybe that makes me a throwback, but that's just the way I see her. I think she's, I think she's a very fair-minded person who puts the needs of the people first from a right-wing point of view, but still. Um, I don't feel the same about Phil. I, I think I think Phil is a showman. I really do. I think I think Phil is kind of cut from that same cloth of you know the the Rush Limbaugh Sean Hannity types. It's entertainment, and he enjoys entertaining. And then turning to the bleachers and are you not entertained? Yeah, I, I, that's kind of how I see him. And Janelle, I just I don't know. I just I cannot I cannot find myself coming away from hearing anything she says with an ounce of respect for her, especially after the whole John Lewis good trouble stuff a couple weeks ago, a couple episodes ago. Still no apology from Janelle on that front, and it's long overdue to be dismissive of John Lewis and Dr. King and the work of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It's just... That, 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 it's, that it's a conservative is one thing, that it's a conservative African-American female to me is even worse. I mean, I'm in no position to be saddened by this, but if I were a civil rights leader of a certain age, I would be extremely saddened. Okay, so what's the grievance you ask? You're like, all right, Ron, what's the grievance? I'm, I'm going to tell you something. I, I keep two Facebook accounts, and I do that for a reason. Um, I have one that I've had almost from the day Facebook you know, was open for the adults, not on college campuses. Anybody remember that? It was like 07, 08, something like that. Um, so I have that one Facebook account. I have, you know, 25, 2,600 people that I, I know or have kept in touch with over the years that I'm friends with on that account. I launched another Facebook page uh, or account profile shortly after starting my uh, real estate 
career. And I did that at the time, mostly just to appease the brokerage I started working for. They were like, oh, you know, you kind of want to do something a little more, a little PG, a little more generic, a little G-rated. I'm like, okay. Uh, I don't know. I didn't really feel right about it. But on that account, I have now been in contact with, who do, how many friends do I have on that account? Let's check that because uh, it's, it's, it's a, such a number now that it's like almost more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, there's like 590 people on this. More trouble than it's worth to just, you know, go to everybody point by point and say, hey, listen, I have this other Facebook account. Do you mind if we just go to that one? So I, I have the two Facebook accounts. And every once in a while, very rarely, but every once in a while, it comes in handy that I have those two Facebook accounts. And would you believe in this case, it's with the Georgia gang on Facebook? Like, I chimed in uh, occasionally on their Facebook post, and they do maybe one a week, where it's kind of like a preview, a picture of the the pundits for that week's episode. They tape on Friday, by the way. And then they post that, uh, that photo with the caption that tells you what that show is going to be all about. And then on Sunday mornings, folks are kind of, you know, interacting with each other in real time in the comments. It's cool. I like that. Um, and there are a lot of trolls on there, the usuals that come in and, you know, kind of do a lot like what Phil does. Just echo the talking points that are easily dispelled, easily disputed, can be, you know, tamped out with facts. And so I, 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 I used to go on there on occasion. Now I don't, not every Sunday. It's just not something, first of all, I don't always watch it when it's live on television. Thank goodness for YouTube TV for that. Um, but I do do that sometimes. So the reason the two Facebook accounts came in handy in this case was for some reason I became disallowed to comment. And trust me when I tell you in my younger days, my my tone, my incivility to dealing with social media trolls was probably a lot more acerbic, a lot more venomous than it is now. I'm a, I'm a pretty easy to get along with guy, even with folks who don't agree with me politically on social media. Really, I am. And I'll tell you who taught me that. The way, seeing the way my ex-husband would act on social media used to take my breath. I mean, I was pearl clutching. I'm like, dude, you can't just, yeah, I just, I pulled back. Um, and I guess with with age comes some wisdom in that, you know, more more bees with honey, right? Uh, that being said, it, it seems to have chafed somebody at uh, WAGA Television, Fox Five, or whoever it is, maybe who independently manages the social media account for the Georgia Gang. Again, a show that I like and have been very supportive of on this show, promoted it often on this show, as I've had. Uh, you know, pundits and guests from that show on this show. So I had that one, my one Facebook account. I, I can still see the page. I'm not blocked from it. I'm blocked from commenting on it. So I had the other Facebook account. And a couple of weeks go by after I determined that I, or I realized I'm not able to comment on the one account, my primary account. I decided, well, you know what? I'm drawn to comment on this again a few weeks later. So I did thinking, aha, that's my around, my workaround. Not that I was like trying to bamboozle anybody, but again, I don't feel like I behave in such a way on social media that it warrants me being banned for crying out loud. Unless 
there is some sort of inherent bias within either the station or whomever handles social media for that show. And I have uh, sent queries via email. I have left voicemail. I have tweeted the show. And I have gotten no answer. And trust me when I tell you, you can go to the Georgia Gang's Facebook page. I implore you to, actually. Go to their Facebook page and read some of the stuff that is said back and forth to each other. The dismissivism, the insults, the put-downs, the ad hominem, and you can see how easily you can find yourself going down the rabbit hole or getting easily upset and respond. And I have asked for policy and for example or examples where I have run afoul of such policy so that I can then point out where others have as well and continue to get to comment. It's okay. It's just a Facebook page. No big deal. I'm not going to uh, not have folks on from the show whenever they'd like. I adore Melita. Melita has been fantastic. Again, huge fan of Theron. Can't wait to get him on the show at some point in time. I know he's a busy guy. Lori Geary, by the way, I love the way she moderates that panel. It's like herding cats sometimes. I... I don't, uh, you know, that's a whew, that's a tough job. I mean, she's got to rein in the cats sometimes, but she does, and I think she does a fairly credible job. I don't happen to know, and this is a credit to Lori, I don't happen to know how Lori feels about anything from an ideological perspective. I really don't. I have absolutely no idea. And that is the hallmark of someone who moderates a political affairs program without giving any hint of bias whatsoever. Good for her. Good for the show. Good for the conversation. I haven't reached out to her. I don't know if this is like her pet project. I haven't. Uh, maybe I should. Maybe I should. I don't know. She and I are actually friends on Facebook, on one on the, 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 uh, the, the longer Facebook uh, account that I've had. I believe she used to work in Augusta Television, and we have a lot of mutual friends, and so that's just kind of how we connected. I don't know if we've ever crossed paths. If we have, gosh, I'm, it's been so long that I wouldn't remember it, and I apologize for that. But again, I, I think she's a credit to the show, to the station, to the concept of a political, uh, political affairs program. I'm just kind of a little weirded out that for whatever reason, why is it, why is it that I'm not allowed to comment on their posts? Hmm. I'll give you an update as soon as I hear more Ron Show on America One Radio after this. Incidentally, for those who don't know, my full-time job is that I am a realtor, a real estate agent with EXP Realty. And you can dive right into the latest listings, get your home value checked out, check out open houses by visiting me at rononthereal.com. Even share some uh, blog posts that has me focusing in on the real estate industry and trends. Obviously, interest rates are climbing right now, which has a lot of folks thinking, oh, that means the market's going to go south. Mm, Atlanta's, Atlanta's a different animal. Money Magazine actually says that Atlanta is the number one place to live, the best place to live in the United States. And by 2040, 
there will be two and a half million more of us living in Metro Atlanta. There's like six million now. That's a big chunk of people coming in the next 18 years. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, 18 years, that's that's a long way from now. Do you know it was 18 years ago we were all jamming in the club to a new song called Yeah by Usher, Lil John, and Ludacris? Yeah. <laughs> Not all that long ago, right? Life moves pretty fast. Ferris Bueller, thank you. Currently, we are seeing mortgage interest rates at or above 7%. That's a far cry from the below 3% figures we were enjoying the last two years, but they're not all that different than what they were in 2004, 18 years ago. And by 2040, if you pull the trigger on a home purchase or a rental income investment property today, you'd be either done with it if you chose a 15-year mortgage or more than halfway through a 30-year note with equity growing by the year in a local housing market needing space for two and a half million more people by 2040. What I'm saying is what you buy now is likely going to be wildly more valuable in 2040 or even 2030. It really is good to be number one, especially if you own your own home or a rental income property or both in Metro Atlanta. Hit me up, Ron at rononthereal.com, 843-283-0078, Georgia MLS 396-720. Follow The Ron Show on Facebook at The Ron Show Radio. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So as we continue through Black History Month, here are some of the things that happened on this day, February 13th, throughout Black History. The Negro National League of Baseball is founded. This in the year 1920, some 40-odd years before Jackie Robinson would break the color barrier. Andrew Rube Foster, who was a baseball player and manager, along with other team owners, created uh, eight teams under the Negro National League, which was founded in Kansas City, Missouri. It was three years later that the first professional black basketball team, the Renaissance, would be founded. The Renaissance, also known as the Wrens, were created by Bob Douglas, an athlete and sports promoter who was known as the father of black professional basketball. Hmm, didn't know that. I'll go ahead and stay in the world of sports before we uh, leave out of that. It was in 1977 that a fellow by the name of Randy Moss would be born. Randy Moss is only three years younger than me? Whew, man, am I getting old. Uh, Randy Moss, by the way, was a fantastic football player at uh, the University of Marshall, Marshall University in West Virginia, his home state. He then, of course, played 14 seasons in the NFL, holds the record for touchdown receptions in a single season, set back in 2007. I believe that is still there. 23 touchdown receptions in the year 2007. He, of course, now a TV analyst and uh, one that I'll never forget. I, what I'll never forget about Randy Moss was that he played for the Minnesota Vikings the year, the first year the Falcons got the Super Bowl. And we thought there's no way in heck that we're going to be able to be Randall Cunningham and Randy Moss in Minneapolis in that loud dome stadium. And yet we did. As great as he was, and he played in two Super Bowls, despite not getting to the one because of the Falcons back in 98-99, he never actually won a Super Bowl ring. That's kind of crazy to think. And he played, I believe he played on that undefeated New England Patriots team that the 9-7 and New York Giants upset in the Super Bowl that year. Remember that? That crazy catch, David Tyree mate? Oh my gosh. Anyway, uh, it was on this day in 1977 that that former NFL great was born, Randy Moss. Uh, okay, so let's do a little culture here. 1893, Matilda Cicireta Joyner-Jones, known as Cicireta Jones, was able to perform during a benefit concert for the World's Fair Colored Opera Company, the first African-American to headline a concert at Carnegie 
Hall. Jones, a soprano, was often referred to as the Black Patty after famous Italian opera singer Adelina Patty, a stage name she didn't really care for. <laughs> she was born in Portsmouth, Virginia, and moved to Providence, Rhode Island with her family later in life. By the way, while we're on the subject of black history, my guest tomorrow, I am excited about this. His name is Kevin Levin. <laughs> it, it just now caught, caught my mind. Kevin Levin. Maybe it's Levine. I'll ask him. It could be Levine. It makes more sense to say Kevin Levine, right? But there's no E after the Whatever. Kevin joins us to talk about uh, his latest article on his Substack. Uh, he is a noted Confederate historian and author, uh, and uh, he posted uh, a blog recently all about my hometown of Augusta, Georgia. Well, not all about it, but about a Confederate monument that still stands to this day on Broad Street in downtown Augusta. It's insane. It really is. And uh, uh, we're, we're going to dive into the history of that monument, not only of the monument, but who was there when it was uh, introduced uh, to the public, and some ties to... Uh, a massacre that occurred across the river just a few years before that monument would be erected. Long after the Civil War, uh, years after Reconstruction had officially come to an end, back then, y'all, the South used to just throw Confederate monuments up, not just to honor the fallen, but also as a tacit, we're not forgetting, and don't you forget either, who runs this show, sort of shadow literally some of these statues and, and monuments casting long shadows over the black population at the time. I, of course, a history junkie and native Augustan, learned something in reading this that I'm going to share with you all tomorrow, as will Kevin, that I had never heard before. And probably because we don't have critical race theory taught to us in our public schools or colleges. And... I'd have to wonder why we weren't taught this. I, 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 knew about, I knew about some of this. Like I knew there was a Hamburg community just across the Savannah River uh, in South Carolina, bordering Augusta, Georgia. But I didn't know about the Hamburg Massacre. Hmm. See, I'm, I'm giving you a little, little taste of what, what our conversation will be about tomorrow. I'm very excited about that. Uh, Kevin Levine or Le Levin? <laughs> I will ask you. I'll ask him before we go on the air all about that. And then I'm going to ask him, what do we have to do to get the rest of these statues and monuments down? My God, I can't believe this is still up in my hometown. It's disgusting. Augusta, by the way, is... Well, let me check the demographic. I think Augusta is a majority-minority city like, a, like Atlanta is, right? Yeah, it is. It's 55% uh, black or African-American. That being said, I'm no idiot. I understand that there was a law in 2019 that... Governor Brian Kemp signed into law that uh, gave a lot of these commemorations and statues and monuments some legal protection by the state of Georgia, despite the fact that the Georgia Supreme Court has handed down some decisions that are neither pro nor anti-statue or commemoration or it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis, yet here we still are in 2023 looking at these gaudy statues some of them with inscriptions like the one in Augusta that read, No nation rose so white and fair, none fell so pure of crime. Are you kidding me? <laughs> K 
Can't wait to talk to Kevin Levin. I'm pretty sure it's Levin about that tomorrow here on The Ron Show. And with that, I leave you to the rest of your day and evening. We will see you tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. here on the America One Radio app and at americaoneradio.com. Today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Today's show notes at ronshowatl.com.